this is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind with me, psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman. And me, science journalist Marnie Chesterton. This is the podcast where we delve into the psychology of everyday life and answer your questions about human behaviour. That's right, your questions are at the heart of this show. Simply send a text or voice message to at WisemanPod or head to listen to onyourmind.com. And in return, you can expect fascinating facts, scintillating science, and this might even improve your life. In this episode, we're talking about some of my favourite psychological studies. How does the pace of life affect us? Do we all have the potential to harm others? And how good are we at telling if politicians are lying? They're always lying. Yes, see their lips move. Let's get on with the show. In this episode, we're going to be jumping around a few different subject areas as we take a magical mystery tour through some of your favourite psychological studies. Anything could happen. Anything could happen, and probably won't, because we're probably going to stick to talking about psychology, right? Um, anything could happen within the crazy world of psychology, I mean, within that, the context of my favourite psychological studies. Yeah, fair enough. So let's start with the very topical uh, subject of politicians and lying. Yeah, I chose this as my favourite. I mean, it's one of my own studies, so I, uh, <laughs> it's slightly egotistical. Someone really marvellous did this. The, the, well, no, I didn't choose it for the study. I chose it for the effect it had on my life. So so it's not quite as egotistical as it appears, but it's close. So I, I joined the University of Hertfordshire, and early on, in you know, I only had one job. That's where I've been for my entire career, basically. And a couple of weeks after joining, uh, there was this email that came in from the BBC, actually, saying that they were going to have National Science Week and that they'd got Tomorrow's World, big science flagship TV programme, as a kind of resource, and they wanted a mega experiment, a mega lab, as they later called it, on there. Problem is, they hadn't got any ideas. I was doing stuff online, so I just sent this quick email saying, why don't we get politicians from the main parties, come on, Tomorrow's World, they can lie and tell the truth, public can vote on which one's lying, we'll find out which party has got the best liars. Probably took me, I don't know, 40 seconds to write that email. It's literally only one or two sentences. Changed my life. Why? Two weeks later, get a phone call from Simon Singh, actually. He's now gone on to be best-selling author and so on. At the time, he's working with Tomorrow's World. And he said, we've chosen your study. Yours is going to be the winning entry out of the hundreds that we had. Uh, we're going to be doing this big lying experiment. So it was my first kind of taste of doing something at that scale and also working with the media. And you thought, this is a lovely bunch of people, yes. I need more media media time. I, I, need, <laughs> I need to spend as much time with these sorts of people as possible. <laughs> you know what they're like. So, yes, yeah, so, so the idea was we contact the major political parties, say, would you put somebody up to lie and tell the truth? This could be live on Tomorrow's World, and then the public would vote. And every single politician we contacted said... No. <laughs> so I thought the whole thing was torpedoed. OK. Simon was great because he said, no, 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 there must be a way around this. And we ended up contacting Sir Robin Day, who was, I mean, still well known now, but at the time, a legendary political... Absolute master. I mean, so interviewed all the major prime ministers and, 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 he and so on. He handbagged, wasn't he, by yes. uh, Margaret Thatcher? Yes, that's right. I mean, he, he was known as the, the most sort of terrifying interviewer of politicians at the time. And the idea was that I would interview him twice. Each time he would talk about his favourite film, one of them would be a complete pack of lies, the other would be the truth. We'd broadcast both of them at the top of this live programme. We'd have about 20 minutes for the public to vote, about five minutes for me to look at the results, turn them round and talk about what this meant. So we had to go along and interview Sir Robin Day. And I hadn't done any television at all. It's the first thing. So I turned up looking 
I think probably the wrong side of scruffy. And, and Simon was so sweet, he lent me his coat. <laughs> and I sat down. Well, there's all cameras and lights and things. And then Sir Robin Day came in and sat down. A man used to doing television, to say the least. And I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And just before we started, I leant forward and I said, I'm a little bit nervous because I've never interviewed anyone before. And he leant forward, he's so sweet, and he said, well, don't you worry, because I've never been interviewed before. And it was very nice, very kind of him. He did these great interviews, each time talking about his favourite film. Can you remember which films he picked? Oh, yeah. So Some Like It Hot and Gone With The Wind. Can I have a rough guess at which yes. one he liked? I'd say he's more of a Some Like It Hot person. Any, any idea why? Because Gone With The Wind is a terrible, long windbag of a film. Yes. And Some Like It Hot is a great film. And it has Marilyn Monroe. And it's got Marilyn Monroe. And he had a thing about Marilyn Monroe. Oh, really, did he? Well, that's very unusual of him. (laughs) (laughs) So those are the two interviews. So then we, about a couple of weeks later, we're at the studio. Very exciting. Play this stuff in. And we had no idea whether anyone would call in because we put these two numbers up on the screen, one for each film. And I remember saying to Simon, it's like, we get like 20 people, because no, no one had done this phone voting before, certainly not in the context of a science experiment. And we got 30,000 people call in. So that was nice. And it split about 50-50 between the two bits, so the public couldn't tell, basically. What was quite neat, though, is we could do this final reveal, was that that was only one small part of the experiment, because we'd also put the audio only on Radio 1, and put the transcript into the Telegraph. And that was with Roger Highfield, who's now working in the Science Museum, again, a very good friend of mine. And so we could see what happens when you take away the visual cues. And my hypothesis at the time, based on some of the work I'd done and other people had done, was that when you took away the misleading visual cues that everyone was relying on for lying, that you'd end up with better lie detection accuracy on the radio and in print. That's really interesting. Thank you. Because I, I would have thought that we'd be able to tell from people's visual cues whether they're lying. And that's why it's counterintuitive. And so that was part of the original proposal, was that you think, okay, the more information you get, and you get most information on television, you'll be better. My idea was, no, 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 it's easy to tell, or it's easy to control, you know, whether you're rubbing your hands together or smiling or whatever it is. They're misleading cues, much harder to control. Uh, We've spoken about this before, what you say and how you say it. And so the radio listeners and the telegraph readers would do better. And? That's exactly what we found. So it was nice. So we got uh, radio listeners at uh, 74% accuracy and newspaper readers at 84%. Wow. And so the little tagline on it was that if you're a politician and you want to lie, stay away from radio, basically. Definitely never put anything in print. Let's move on to our next study, yes. which is all about everyday memory. Everyday memory. What's that and about? I've chosen one by a good friend of mine, Chris French, another psychologist, another psychologist into the paranormal. But what Chris has also done, as well as paranormal stuff, is looked at everyday memory. So these are things that we see all of the time, but we can't remember very well. And his one was uh, on a clock face which got Roman numerals on it. And listeners can play along with this as well. But I'll, I'll give you this picture. Oh, actually, I'll, I'll fold this piece of paper in half, first of all, and I'll show you this picture from a distance. So what we've got is a clock face. Um, okay. You can see that with Roman numerals, yep. which is something you've seen many times in your life. The question is, how would number four be represented on there? A, a one and a V. Which is what almost everyone says. Despite having seen that on watches and, and so on your whole life, that is not the case. It's almost always on a Roman numeral clock face for ones. No! Yes. The only exception is Big Ben. But for, in terms of balance, it's almost always for ones. Huh. 
Now, what's interesting about what Chris did was not only demonstrate that, when you give people a clock face, which is correct, as it were, in terms of having the four ones on, ask them to copy it, even though it's right in front of them, they still put a 1V on it. So it's, it kind of drives us, this, this idea that we, we're seeing this and we're not really paying attention. It's called everyday memory. And you'd think you'd know, but you don't. The other one is on a coin, as the queen, probably the king now, but it's the queen facing to the left or to the right. Uh. <laughs> people, people at home can play along. Oh, no. I I'm wish... now getting a coin out my I, pocket. OK. I, I think she's facing to the left. OK. The reason you might say that is that's the way in which the Queen faces on stamps. Yes. On a coin Ooh. to the right. OK, yes. So, seen it many, many times in your life, but haven't registered it. And again, it sort of speaks to one of the themes we've been talking about. We can be very confident about some things, something you've seen thousands and thousands of times and very wrong. Wow. And it was Chris that did some early work into that. Just another little favourite study of mine. Is my take care from that that I should just pay more attention? I, I think it's more that when you're certain of something, in terms of eyewitness testimony, know that you could be wrong. OK. And, and that actually you can look at something many, many times and that it's whether you're paying attention or not, it's what determines what goes into your, your mind, not just the act of, of simply looking. So, favourite psychological studies. Yes. I think one of the all-time classics, and we've, we've mentioned it in multiple episodes, but not really gone into the details, is Milgram's shock experiments. Yes. It's, it's, <laughs> the reason why I've always avoided talking about it is that it's a little bit of a... You can't, you can't cover it quickly. And also, oh, my goodness, it's in every textbook. It's in every course on, on psychology. It's out there. So I think, I'm not certain, whenever I've spoken about his work in any of my books, I've gone away from the shock experiment because he did so many other amazing things. Okay. We talked about the drop letter technique. At, at some point, we work out the political views of an area by seeing how many letters returned in uh, different um, addresses. Uh, the small world phenomenon is his. He did loads of really good stuff. But he also did the shock experiment. And that's the famous one, so we should talk about it. So, settle in, folks. Settle in. Once upon a time... I can cover this in about three hours. I should say there are many different ways of looking at Milgram. This is just my take on it. <laughs> that's fine. This is a podcast, so we can actually waffle on as long as we want to. <laughs> well, 1960s, yep. Yale University, Stanley Milgram asks a great question. The question is, are some people... I'm going to use these words, born evil. Mm. Or have we, have we all got that inside us? And if the situation is right, does that sense of doing something nasty to somebody else naturally emerge? So great it's, it's, question. It's a great question. It's this sort of uh, looking at the individual versus the situation. Uh, acts of violence, the result of a particular individual, are the result of the situation that person is in. That was his question. To try and answer it, he comes up with the shock experiment. So you would come along as a participant... You would be introduced to another participant, let's suppose me. You wouldn't know that I'm working for Milgram. You're a stooge. I'm a stooge. I'm a confederate. I'm like that. You would be assigned the role of teacher. I would be assigned the role of learner. I'd be put into the next room. You wouldn't be able to see me, but you would be able to hear me, and I can hear you. You give me word pairs like dog curtain, and I have to remember them. Then you test me. You give me the word dog, I have to say the word curtain. If I get it wrong, you're asked to give me an electric shock. And the more I get wrong, the greater the intensity of the shock. And when you don't want to give me any more shocks and I'm screaming or whatever it is, you're urged to go on by the experimenter. The final bit on the shock scale is simply XXXX. 
And that's a pretty lethal shock. And the question that Milgram had was how many people would go up to that final level. And what most people predict is that they wouldn't go there. They're not that type of person. And what he found was, and there's many different experiments and many different results, but the bottom line is that most people, certainly the majority, would go up to giving the apparently lethal electric shock to somebody in the next room, even though they didn't think they were that sort of person. And Did they, they didn't know it was lethal? They had... Well, they're pretty close. OK. So, so you're hearing the learner who's going through a script screaming, then they say, oh, I've got a heart problem, then they go very quiet, and you're still carrying on giving electric shocks. And they know that the final one, it's very, very high. Okay. So it's normally, or it originally was used to demonstrate the power of the situation. That it's not that some people are especially evil, it's that any of us would behave like that in the right situation. And that was the original way in which it was taught and the way I was probably taught it when I was an undergraduate. Is it just, though, the person in the white coat who's the authority figure. That's what I was told. Yeah, it's obedience to authority. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Okay. So that, that's, that's the idea. And of course, they are pushing you, pushing you forward, oh, please carry on for the experiment and so on. Then you have a whole load of critics, including uh, Gina Perry in Australia, who take a second look at this and go, hold on a second. It's not quite that straightforward. We, we should say it before that, that obviously a lot of the participants were in distress. Yeah. And so that's what gives rise to the Ethics Committee in psychology. You wouldn't be doing this experiment today, but you wouldn't get it through an Ethics Committee probably. OK, and that's because you're not allowed to upset people by uh, that's right. sort you're of supposed lying to, keep any, to them. Any, that's right, you keep any distress to the minimum, basically, yes. Yeah. Part of the problem is that the participants didn't believe that they would be actually shocking the person next door. They realised it was an experiment. They realised that nobody would really undergo those electric shocks in experimental context. And so the argument is they're kind of play-acting. They're, okay. they're, they're going along with it. Like the prison experiment. Yes. So and that's that was... Zimbardo, Philip Zimbardo, who bizarrely went to school with Milgram. The two of them sat next to each other in okay. high school. Like and failed the same ethics <laughs> lesson. So, so there, there you're dressing... Skipped out on it. Exactly. There you're dressing people up as prisoners and guards and, and, and people are adopting those roles if you believe the results. So here the same criticism is levelled at Milgram participants. What doesn't quite fit with that is that some of them are very distressed. And when you watch the film of this, the, the people having to press the buttons and so on are becoming increasingly distressed. They're asking about the well-being of the person next door and so on. So that, that's the counter-criticism. The other is that there's quite a lot of, of pressure being put on these people to keep on pressing the buttons. So it isn't just this case of, oh, there are a few prompts. They really are being pressured, and there's a lot of truth to that. But still, fundamentally, the truth is that the majority of people went much further along that electric shock scale than you would perhaps have anticipated. And some of my favourite work, carried out by another psychologist, Stephen Riker, has a slightly different take on it that I find more believable and plausible. Milgram's idea is that the participants were going into this weird, almost state of consciousness where they had no agency, they were just following instructions. Other psychologists, including Riker, have argued that's not the case. They were doing this because they believed it was for a greater good. It was for the good of science. They were pushing back the boundaries of knowledge. And he argued that people will do things which would be quite surprising for a greater good. That's one of the things which will entice people to do acts of violence and so on. And so his interpretation of Milgram is somewhat different. OK. So that makes sense? Yes, it does. It does. Can I ask what Milgram took out of this? So did he 
believe he'd uncovered something really dark about humanity. Did he? And yeah. did he stick to that interpretation for the rest That's of his... That's my understanding. OK. It's his argument. Everyone potentially has the ability to harm others, and in certain situations that will emerge. That, that was his big takeaway message. So it's fascinating. So it's studies and still taught all these years When you later. say still taught, what is taught? Is uh, it... Well, I, I think the studies and the criticism right, and right, the counter-criticism right. and the complexity okay. of it. And part of that speaks to social psychology. If it's a good study and it's interesting, it's probably going to be quite complicated and open to all sorts of interpretations. But it's it's impressive stuff. Uh, so it has stood the test of time, unlike a lot of uh, psychology studies. And we're absolutely sure that you can't run any kind of experiment like that nowadays. You could do a version of it. It would be difficult. And the other, well, this is social psychology. Times have changed. And also, this is such a well-known study that if you tried to run it, people would say, oh, hold on a second. Isn't that the electric buzzer yeah. study? So unlike you need to run it with children who haven't learnt about the Milgram experiment. It's been run with lots of different groups over the, the years. This was a French game show that ran it. No. Live on television, they got exactly the same result. So it has been done in many different contexts. But what's interesting about social psychology, unlike, say, chemistry, if you do an experiment, I don't know, with atoms or something, wherever they are, um, <laughs> next time, I don't know what these things are. He does not care. Molecules, whatever. Next time you do it, those molecules haven't learnt about the study and will do something different that next time. So in that sense, replication is easier. With social psychology, if it's a good study, word gets out there, people then go, hold on a second, I'm going to behave differently just to annoy you. As we've seen many times during this podcast with your own contribution not to my studies. I'm not trying to annoy you. No. I'm just annoying you. That's, that's very that's different. different thing. Subtly different. Subtly. So that's why I went with it as a favourite study. It's famous, it's groundbreaking, it's controversial. That's great. And sad that we can't do experiments like that anymore. Well. I'm joking, of course. Uh, hooray for the ethics committee. Indeed. This is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind, and in this episode, we're talking about our favourite psychological studies, and if you want us to keep doing this, we need your help and support. Please review us and share the episode with your friends, and please subscribe too. It helps other people to find us. So the next study we're going to look at is all to do with the pace of life. Yes. And where we live and how that affects it. So this is Robert Levine, unfortunately no longer with us, but a great psychologist. And when I was writing, I think, Quarkology all those years ago, most psychology, as I've said before, a little bit dull, to say the least. And then occasionally you come across one person doing great, great, interesting work. And for me, that happened when I saw Robert Levine's work. So he's on the west coast of America, but his studies are international. So he sends research teams across the world, in fact, in one of these studies, to 31 countries to measure the pace of life. How fast is life in that particular capital city normally? And again, that's a good question. It's a question I often put to students. How would you do that? How do you go about measuring the pace of life? And Levine's answer was that you secretly watch people walking along the pavement and time how long it takes them to walk 60 metres, whatever it is. Yep. You can go to post offices and ask for a stamp and see how long it takes them to serve you. Okay. And when you do that, you find those measures correlate. They tend to be related to one another. And it gives you, in Levine's mind, a good measure of the pace of life of that particular capital city. So he does that, and the fastest pace of life in, in the 31 capital cities he looked at, Switzerland, Ireland came second, uh, and then Germany third. And in fact, the nine fastest countries were all from Western Europe. So he does that. And then he starts to do other studies 
that look at the correlates of this pace of life, what's related to pace of life. And in some studies, he goes out and looks at helping behaviour. So we'll have a student uh, drop a pen in the street as they walk along, and does somebody stop them and go, oh, you dropped your pen? I have done many of those studies. They're great. You can also put your leg in a cast, a fake cast, as if you've broken your leg, and you drop some books, and will people help you pick them up? And he finds a very direct relationship. The faster the pace of life, the less helping in that particular capital city. But on the other side of things, higher economic vitality, so normally wealthier places, higher happiness in places that got a faster pace of life, but higher death rates from heart disease. Uh, and You'd think lower because, you know, all of the rushing around. No, so, so this gets back to what some psychologists refer to as a type A personality. There's that sense of urgency, competitiveness, rushing around. It's not great for your physiological system. Uh, first to finish at the dinner table is another one of those indicators. Oh, really? So if you finish eating first, you're yes. more likely to die of a heart attack. Correct, that's right. Probably and indigestion. You've got more food inside you. <laughs> so, so what I like about Levine's stuff is that he takes these measures that seem quite esoteric and are quite brief measures, and that yet they're related to all these fascinating variables. How many more are there out there that it's, seem esoteric but are actually... Yeah, and there's, there's probably connected. a lot more to be done. Everyone involved in Levine's study, thousands of people, had no idea they've contributed to a study. It's very naturalistic, very observational, as psychologists would say. Yeah, so he sees that this, this very simple measure tells you a great deal about the place in terms of heart attacks, in terms of economic vitality, in terms of happiness, uh, and so on. And that was in the early 90s. And then in 2006, I did it. Uh, I, I restaged his studies. I'm a big fan of them. This was with the British Council. And we looked at 32 cities wow. across the world. And we found out that compared to the 1990s, when Robert uh, had done his studies, the world was moving about 10% faster. Ooh, interesting. So, so people were rushing a lot more in these the same places where we could do the comparison. And it was the same places that he'd looked at? Uh, where, we, where we did the comparison yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, we added some more on. I would like you to do them again now that everyone's got smartphones. Yes. Because I think that might skew the data. So I normally work quite close to Oxford Street. Mm -hmm. People come out of the tube and then they get on their phone to see where they're going or something and answer a text message. And then they just sort of amble around like a zombie. Yes. And then you're stuck behind them. See, it's a, it's a very good point because it's like all psychology. We couldn't really do the study nowadays for exactly that reason. It's almost everyone's on a smartphone. And as you say, probably walking a bit more slowly, but a bit more haphazardly, getting in each other's way and all those sorts of things. So the world has changed. We'd have to come up with another measure that hopefully would reflect this. So it is interesting, that idea of, is rushing around good for you? And I came up with a little questionnaire at the time, which is uh, some sort of pointers as to whether perhaps you're living life a little bit too quickly. One of them is when somebody takes too long to get to the point, do you feel like hurrying them along? But <laughs> you're laughing. Is that you? Uh, so I'm, I might be the other person. So I was, I was mid-anecdote and a friend of mine does this kind of circling motion with his fingers <laughs> and he goes skip to the end right. <laughs> and it was very charming very charmingly done okay first person to finish at meal times yes is really yeah that's you Often. okay right i'm from a big family okay. so you know if you don't eat the food somebody else eats the food <laughs> Someone there's swoops a, in there's a pack mentality it's taken <laughs> decades to slow down how about queuing in a supermarket what, do I get panicky? Well, do you get annoyed? Or is it quite a zen experience? It's, no, I get annoyed. Do you get annoyed? Yeah. Okay. 
There is a study out there, I believe, again, I have never been able to track it down. I believe it's out there, which is that to try and help people get over this type A personality, so-called type A personality, you put them at the back of a supermarket queue, wait until they get right to the front, then take them out and put them at the back again. Um, That's so good. (laughs) I'd love to see the footage from that and and who got thumped. If you're caught in slow-moving traffic, do you seem to get more annoyed than other drivers? Yeah, it depends if I'm running late. Right. It's all, it all okay. depends, but yes. Okay. I'd say yes. So I think you're coming up quite a high score on this. Okay. Yeah. I think you need to just take it easy. There's just certain things. It's just, I think it, it ties into being that optimistic mindset person who knows that it can take 20 minutes to get somewhere, so I will leave 20 minutes to get there. Right. And then if anything goes wrong, yeah. then I'm furious. Right. Uh, Because secretly I know it's my fault and I should have left (laughs) half an hour. You see, I subscribe to the if if you're not 10 minutes early, you're late. That's so good. So we've covered a lot here. We've found out that liars, if you want to lie, then the best signals in terms of lie detection are in the words we say and how we say them. And so if you want to detect a liar, actually ignoring the visual signals is a very good idea. We have talked about the controversy that is Milgram and this idea that maybe when we start to talk about doing things for the greater good, it can drive us to do I'm still not, feet. still not sure what my take-home is from Milgram. Is it, is it that we all have the capacity to be cruel? Or is it way more I would more argue that when we start to say this is for the greater good, that we start to find aspects of ourselves that are surprising in how we behave. And sometimes that could be good because you might be motivated to do something and it might be bad because you'd be motivated to do something. But giving ourselves up for that, that greater good, and Milgram's experiment has been argued it's for the greater good of science that you inflict this pain on somebody and we're prepared to do it. We have found out that our memories are not as good as we might think, that we can see something thousands of times in our life and have no idea what it's like. Gutted. And we found out the pace of life, incredibly important. Just how quickly you're moving around can tell you a lot about yourself, a lot about the communities. In fact, if you move, you're a fairly slow-paced person and you move to a place with a faster pace of life, you start to move quicker and and develop all those issues associated with the so-called type A personality. So slow down uh, is not a bad idea at all. Okay. So how do we slow down? You just keep reminding yourself. Tattoo it on your hand. Well, eating more slowly, speaking more slowly, being more tolerant of people's stories who might be a little bit long, uh, realising that uh, <laughs> you can be quite zen-like in a queue, there's nothing you can do about it, not being so competitive because they're not having a great impact on your physical and your mental health. But I've chosen these studies because, I mean, I've looked at hundreds of studies because I've written the, the books and so on, you go through all the stuff. So, so I, I went with these either because they've got some kind of personal significance to myself or I just think they're really interesting mm. or they're really controversial or they get everyone talking or they're people go, oh, my goodness. And a lot of psychology isn't like that. So it's, it's lovely to celebrate these experiments. From Podomo and Telltale, this has been Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. Hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman and Marnie Chesterton. Our producer is Kate White. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudno and Matt White. And for Telltale are Rami Sabar and Jago Lee. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at WisemanPod. Where we'll be regularly asking you for questions for future episodes. You can also email us at WisemanPod at Podomo.com. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends, leave us a review. If you don't like it, tell your friends you did. Why should you be the only ones to suffer? Although it does help others find us. And don't forget to subscribe. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.